Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Five Things, where we dive deep into five topics from social media and share our takeaways for the week. This week, I have two close friends of the pod, Tommy. Hello. And Juliana. Hello, other Joey. I am other Joey. Joey, we miss you. Hope that we do you justice this week. We will bring you back next week to jump right in. All right, this week we have some interesting hot goss. We have some information about Facebook and our friend Old Zuck. We have some updates from Disney's Creation Lab, a great new Snapchat campaign. They've been doing some really interesting ones this year. Um, An update between Twitch and their music publishers that they've been having some issues with. And then also we're going to see a pretty interesting campaign update from Google. So without further ado, Juliana, take us away. Yes, thanks so much, Amanda. So up top, uh, Facebook had reportedly promised President Trump it wouldn't fact-check political speech. And in continuing our uh, fall of Zuck, and by that I mean the fall period of Zuckerberg news, we have this fantastic piece of information coming out of the new book, The Contrarian, by uh, reporter Max Chafkin. And it's all about Trump supporter Peter Thiel. And the basic piece of information that's kind of rolled out that everyone's kind of up in arms about is that Zuckerberg allegedly promised then President Trump that Facebook would not fact check any political speech in an effort to avoid new regulations from the Trump admin. So it kind of, there's a complicated relationship that kind of leads us to how Zuckerberg ended up in a book about Peter Thiel. But the basics of it is that Peter Thiel is a pretty notorious venture capitalist. He's co-founder of plenty of companies, including PayPal, Palantir Technologies, and Founders Fund. And he was also one of the first outside investors in Facebook. So that's how all these Venn diagrams start to overlap. And the idea is that in 2019, uh, when Zuckerberg was in Washington for a congressional hearing, he accepted an invite from Trump for dinner at the White House. And so in attendance was Trump, Zook, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and Peter Thiel. And so according to an excerpt from The Contrarian, Thiel told a confidant that during the dinner, a supposed understanding was reached between Zuckerberg and Kushner that Facebook would continue to avoid fact-checking political speech and that as long as Facebook continued to do so, Trump would avoid any heavy-handed regulations targeting Facebook. Now, don't get me wrong, I love a good dunk session on one of the largest companies in the world, but the reality is that this doesn't really come as too much of a shock. Um, you know, When you read into a little bit more in-depth, just one month before the dinner, Facebook had announced a new policy that exempted politician speech from the company's community standards. And so in it, Facebook was essentially saying that what politicians have to say is so much so in the interest of you know, public news that were to fact check it, it would be doing more harm than good. And so trying to do silly things like ensure that what politicians are saying falls within the uh, bylines of the website is not something that they're going to be enforcing. And this information was you know, not only shared again in 2019, but also in 2018, it was um, you know, established that that was when the, the policy had actually been implemented. So this has been kind of a long form project of Facebook. I think really what has people kind of up in arms is the idea that a private company is doing pretty interesting dealings or allegedly having these like very straightforward quid pro quo conversations with politicians about kind of trading in its professed 
rules and guidelines just to be protected from any sort of regulation or be protected from the kind of uh, ever encroaching arm of government into the practices of these large companies. And so I understand why people are upset and freaking out, but I think it's just something to be said about what is Facebook actually doing? What has Facebook actually done since that time? So as said, in 2019, already Facebook was saying that they're not going to be limiting what politicians are saying. So even if they do have an additional conversation with President Trump in later 2019, does that really change anything? And then all moreover, when we look at what happened after you know January 6th of 2021, uh, you know, when Facebook extended uh, after that fact, when Facebook decided to you know, ban President Trump from the platform, when it extended Trump's ban from the platform to two years, and then from that point, you know, promised to stop giving politicians preferential treatment, all of those things are a little bit more impactful, at least in my eyes. And I think what is the important part of this is that what Facebook has done and what Facebook continues to do and kind of trying to become a little bit more of a legitimate space from the idea of you know misinformation being spread, from whether or not it's protecting people from kind of just sharing inflammatory, inflammatory information, laissez-faire. Those are the things that I'm really concerned about. And I think what this does is connect really importantly to the cross-check conversation we had on the podcast last week, if you haven't listened, um, and getting us to start thinking about you know, who exactly is being protected by social media sites And should we be trying to get these companies to come forward and kind of have this constant dialogue with us about what are they doing to ensure that misinformation or inflammatory information isn't being shared versus trying to get these gotcha moments from a book that is basically telling us stuff that we probably already guessed about Facebook all along. But yeah, happy to to hear your thoughts, Amanda. You weren't here during the Zuck Duck Fest last week, so we'd be excited to hear if you have any thoughts here. No, I did listen and I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And, you know, my immediate thought too is as marketers, like we've been following this from a policy and kind of information share perspective over the last, I mean, honestly, since since before the election, um, the most recent election. How do you think that this impacts how your day-to-day social media users, you know, think about the platform, use the platform? Like, do you think that these kinds of, you know, news breaks are things that they're following? Do you think it will impact their behavior? What is the long-term effect? I think it definitely might. I mean, Facebook, I mean, the Zuck wave of hate is just rolling down. It's been a really bad few <laughs> couple days for them. And people do take notice. There's a noticeable perception by users against Facebook because of this, you know, this perception even before this news came out that they were playing fast and loose with moderation they were allowing for misinformation, that they were even in some ways becoming a breeding ground for it. I mean, Facebook, in some people's eyes, is the place where, you know, I see my grandparents uh, get QAnon. And so I think these perceptions, they build over time and they make an impression about this platform that could get people to become totally removed from it. Like, I know a lot of kids my age who are totally anti-Facebook. Like, after college, they got just got off of it. And I think that There will be another wave of attacks against Facebook, I think probably from the government, I think from users, I think from just people based off both cross-checks and this news. And I think it really does make an impression on how people use or choose not to use the app. I think also one thing that kind of, like I would take from the kind of 
growing sentiment and not even just growing sentiment, growing perception that Facebook isn't exactly a space intrinsically linked with authenticity. If I'm trying to grow my platform based on the idea of being very like true to form, being very based on being honest with people and kind of the most raw version of self, I don't know if Facebook would be the space that I would turn to, uh, you know, in order to build that platform, to build that idea, especially if you are kind of going to be swimming in a feed layered with who knows what type of information. I think that's why you see a lot of, you know, influencers wanting to be able to build their platform through the things that they're doing on the side in like a Patreon or kind of like a smaller space or building themselves through a TikTok, something that allows them to kind of have to speak honestly because people can immediately respond to you or at the very least if your information if your product is taken down you have to kind of fight to prove that what you're saying is true and honest versus it kind of seeming as though anyone can say anything on a facebook and so why should i trust what you're saying versus anybody else a very uncertain time for facebook a little bit of a rough waters there um thank you guys all right into something a little bit lighter tommy Let's talk about Disney. Let's go the opposite. Let's go Disney. Let's get into it. Um, so Disney has announced the formation of the Disney Creators Lab, which recruited 20 emerging social influencers who are also enthusiastic advocates of the House of Mouse. They are hosting eight online courses to take the 20 creators through lessons in promoting the Disney brand on social media that covers topics like branding, merchandising, creativity, and monetization. And Disney has always been, you know, a place that takes young talent and develops it and makes a relationship with them that they can use to, you know, further their own brand. Think of your your Miley Cyrus's and Hannah Montana's. Those are famously two different people. Your Selena Gomez's, your Olivia Rodrigo's. But this is the first time we're seeing Disney invest in people who are not, you know, uh, triple threats actors, singers, songwriters, what have you, but instead in micro-influencers. All of these kids have only between 10K and 60K followers. They're not really making a major impact on any platform they're on, but they all have in common that they are massive fans of the Disney brand. So I think this is a really interesting development. Um, And it's not new for companies to have influencer programs. I mean, Instagram had one. TikTok had one, Snapchat had one, but this is the first time we're seeing a major brand that creates content, that creates media, invest not just in young talent like this, but also in TikTok as a brand itself, also in just the idea of influencers. I think it's interesting that they're they're really taking a chance on these kids and betting that they're going to make it big one day and that will help Disney out in the future, like sort of a different quid pro quo um, and a lighter one instead of the Zuck uh, Trump alleged one. But this one is luckily allowing fans to learn from the biggest brand on the planet. I mean, Disney owns everything and take from it. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how will these kids continue to further the Disney brand once they've taken these courses. I'm going to try and check in on them every now and again, even though I'm not on the Disney side of TikTok, because I think this is maybe an important first step for brands to do in the future. Maybe we'll see more from Universal, Paramount, especially as streaming and culture gets more and more fragmented. I think we'll see programs like this pop up more and more, but I'm interested to see what y'all make of this. 
I think this is such a funny, the king is dead, long live the king type of moment where Disney, the former kingmaker of children's influencers and younger audience influencers, now kind of having ceded that power to social media and the ability for individuals to kind of make their own fame is now finding a way to tap back into that space. And perhaps now they aren't the kingmaker, but at the very least they can kind of participate in the rise of, you know, the potential new faces that do become the, you know, the next Olivia Rodrigo, or at the very least, kind of the next like household name, uh, you know, trying to, if they can't make more Zendaya's, at least be a part of the new Zendaya's rise. So I think that's a very interesting one, just kind of great example of the need to pivot. And perhaps instead of trying to hold on to the last bastions of former culture, adapting to what is popular now and at least allowing yourself to perhaps yield to where people are getting their inspiration from and trying to find a way that if you do have this generational knowledge and this kind of grandfathered in understanding of the way that the industry works, use that as a way to partner with these newer people so that you both can benefit. Yeah, it definitely feels like a little bit of change of era for not only influencer and kind of content creators, but also like streaming content. You know, you think of it through the lens of Disney Plus up against the Hulus and the Netflix. Like what does on-demand content look like? Does this actually mark a new kind of relationship between creators and brands? I mean, this also comes after this week, Jojo Siwa like slammed Nickelodeon for how they treated her as an influencer and just as like an entity versus something to really be invested in. And I think, I mean, do you guys feel like this is kind of a new era for influencers versus what we used to see of, you know, sponsored posts, sponsored content, you know, nice working with you. Goodbye. Like, is this a little bit of a deeper era for how those brands work with influencers? I definitely think so. Because in this case, Disney is choosing kids who are already pro Disney. They're choosing kids who are advocates for the brand. They're massive fans. They are loud and proud with their Disney love. And I think where other influencers just like, okay, here's one single post. See you later. Goodbye. Here's a million to Kylie Jenner. Now it's welcome to the house of mouse. Come on in. And we're going to have a real long relationship with you. Whereas it's just a totally new way of approaching the influencer um, environment. Instead of a one-off relationship, it's a long-lasting, fulfilling part of a family. So I think this will be definitely a new way of approaching influencers. And I definitely think, too, that as well, kind of, Amanda, to your point about the changing dynamic, where prior it was sort of a, you know, to to Tommy's point, come in, here's the post, here's the rules of what you're going to do. Um, You know, you throw it out into the world, and if you play really nice, maybe we'll do this again sometimes. Uh, where now it's a matter of, okay, we're going to empower you to, yes, perhaps work with us, but also giving you skills that can take part in relationships you have with other brands, or you can take this knowledge and be a little bit more empowered as an individual creator. And perhaps the goodwill that this generates will make you want to work with us more. And so it is very much a different dynamic about kind of who is, who is feeding whom and who's worried about biting that hand. Uh, so I'm really here for there being more power in the individual, especially as we see these like larger companies with more conversation about the way that these 
young stars were kind of either taken advantage of or felt so their their visions weren't respected, their brand wasn't respected, you know, giving them a little bit more space to feel like they can come and go as they please. I, I really think that this is a benefit, but it's also something that I think we should all be mindful of as we think about how we're going to work with influencers. And if you are an influencer or someone who has their smaller brand, taking this as an example that you do have a lot more power in these relationships. So, you know, you don't have to take just the crumbs that are offered to you. All right. We love a two-way relationship. That was a really nice topic. Good to hear a giant like Disney moving in the right direction. All right, Juliana, let's talk about Snapchat, their new campaign this week. Yeah, I just, man, you know, Snapchat is someone that I think deserves a lot more attention. She should be prom queen. Everyone loves her and she's really popular around the rest of the weird kids that I'm a part of. Uh, so Snapchat introduced this new lens to teach users ASL, uh, to mark the international week of the deaf. Snapchat has created custom stickers and three AR lenses that are encouraging users to fingerspell. And so it uses AI and computer vision technology developed by this Hungarian startup called SignAll, uh, which focuses on technology for deaf people. And so the new features were also driven internally by, um, the SnapLab software engineer, Jenica Pounds, who is deaf herself. And it's just really interesting The the new fe- features are not only, you know, designed by this company that they're working with outside, but it really kind of speaks to this idea of there being an internal drive within Snapchat to encourage not only accessibility, but also empowering the voices of their deaf and hard of hearing employees. The way that this technology works is that, you know, it can track hand movements to translate sign language into spoken language. And this, these AR lenses are encouraging Snap users to uh, learn how to fingerspell their name, learn how to fingerspell common words like love or hug or smile or whatever have you. And I think this is just so awesome. I think this is such a great use, not only of the kind of Snapchat discovery uh, feature that it seems to be the way that most people use Snapchat, which is kind of seeing like what's new and available that I can do while I'm you know, sitting around and communicating with my friends. What this really signifies is the important second wave of accessibility in social media, where the first one was a matter of how can we ensure that individuals of different abilities were able to come into the perhaps neurotypical world. Uh, This is saying, how can we make sure that the door is open both ways so that individuals who are deaf, hard of hearing are not only just kind of able to be spectators and watch what's going on amongst those who are not of, of that group, It's saying, how can we try to make a bridge so that individuals who perhaps never fancied having a conversation with the deaf and hard of hearing community can start to form the interest and perhaps form the skills to be able to do so. I think what this really signifies is that true accessibility is a world where everyone's able to speak in a two-way relationship. Again, to your point, Amanda, we love a two-way relationship. And Snapchat, being able to use their tools to start engendering that it's so dope. Um, so nothing, nothing but high fives across the, the board. Definitely open up your Snapchat app if you haven't already and, you know, get on board. Yeah, I think, again, the addition of like a layer of accessibility is really interesting. And there's also this really interesting and engaging aspect that's almost educational, like the interactivity of it, the way that you kind of want to pull up the the lens and engage with it, try to sign, you know, letters and things like that. It makes me wonder too, like, do you think that we'll see more examples of different ways that we can educate users on the platform more actively? Like the use of AR through an education lens is fascinating, but we don't really see it that much. 
What do you guys think? I mean, I think what it really boils down to is while as much as Gen Z is known for being kind of exploratory and willing to learn basically anything, what is probably most important is ensuring that if you do want to have this as a part of your platform, that it makes sense for the platform. You know, I, if, if Twitter were going to promote a way for me to start being able to read French effectively, I think that would make a lot of sense in that space because, you know, you do have these different communities that aren't able to cross over to one another because of language barrier. They, yes, have allowed, you know, the ability to retranslate, but not all of these parts of the language uh, come across, especially when you're abbreviating kind of commonly used terms. So if, say, Twitter were to do that from a language perspective, I think that would make sense. If, you know, we were to see perhaps TikTok introducing an ability to have like videos that aren't captioned but are in a different language like i don't know subtitled having subtitle options or having like a dubbed option if you're an anime dubbed enthusiast you know like something like that i think it really just isn't a matter of does it make sense for the space and only then can people really jump on board so it shouldn't just be something that's done for the sake of doing it because if no one actually uses it then like what change are you impacting we love to see it. That's for sure. Snapchat's been really pulling out some interesting campaigns. Hats off to them. Give them their flowers. All right. Next, we're going to talk about Twitch. Um, after a year of really intense crackdowns of music used on the site, a lot of streamers were getting their content not only um, taken down, but permanently deleted if they used copyrighted music. Um, there was a lot of complaints. A lot of people switched from Twitch to YouTube over the past you know, several months to a year. But this week, it was announced that Twitch has signed a deal with the National Music Publishers Association, which handles a lot of copyrighted uh, labels and artists, that allows for a new process to how streamers can use music in their content. So I put the emphasis on process because there's not a big update just yet, but the news itself is pretty interesting. Again, I mentioned that like a lot of streams would just be absolutely removed if they used licensed music and that content would be gone forever. Streamers couldn't get it back. They couldn't, you know, connect with the platform to retrieve their content that was deleted. But what's happening now is they're essentially opening up a process where labels and artists can opt in to preferences that allow their music to be used in streams if they would like. So again, this is the opening of the process. A lot of labels and artists will probably buy into it and understand how to use it a little bit more in the future. But the other difference too is that if a streamer does use music in their stream that's copyrighted and not cleared by this process, instead of the really aggressive penalties they were getting before, they'll actually just get a warning or a series of warnings before something is taken down or removed. So again, listening to the creators a little bit, understanding you know what is the pain point there, especially when you're playing a game you do something really amazing, you have an awesome like highlight reel. If that's lost forever, you can't get it back. Like that's a really terrible thing for these creators to have to experience and, and was a reason for them to leave the platform. So it's interesting. A lot of people are of mind that this doesn't change anything for the streamers, which is fair. There's not a lot of new updates just yet and how they interact with the platform. But just the act of the out outlining a process and how users can opt in and also labels can opt in, I mean, the reality is Twitch is on two sides of a pretty tough coin. They want to ensure that the music industry is properly supported and also support the creators on their site. Even some games use music that isn't 
cop is copyrighted. So if a user plays a game, they don't even realize that song is copyrighted, their streams might get taken down. So it's a really big gray area. It's really tricky. I think this deal is the first of many steps on the platform to figure out what is the right way. How does everybody as creators, as artists, as you know, streamers, how are they supported um, on both sides of it? It's interesting. I think it's gotten a little bit of feedback um, for not being enough. But I personally think it's a big step in the right direction. And my question for you guys too is, you know, on general social media and content platforms, the role of music is evolving and becoming really, really important. This process is really interesting. I wonder how this is going to impact other platforms. You know, you think of music heavy platforms like TikTok. Is there something to be kind of learned here about how platforms leverage music? Yeah, definitely. I think I think of YouTube specifically because YouTube has a lot of issues also with videos being taken down because of copyrighted music. I think of like um, ContraPoints as a YouTuber who has a lot of her videos. She's very music heavy as like little bits and jokes, but they get taken down. She has to upload them without the music. And that's such a common occurrence on the app. This is an important moment for Twitch that was so harsh and doling out punishments to its creatives to the lifeblood of its platforms over music where music was such an important part of it that i think where music's for apps that where music's even a more important part of like youtube like tiktok where this hasn't been as much of an issue yet it's an indication of how important music is for content and how people consume and create content so i think this is a really great step it's just a step but it's a really great step forward from twitch and for creators in general I think something that this really points to, and I think what we're you know continuing to see is the relationship, you know, Tommy, to your point, the relationship between music and kind of every other form of social media is so important. Um, you know, whether it's just kind of to emphasize a moment or it kind of allows for people to get into a specific headspace. Like I would love to see there being a lot more kind of conversation about how the relationship between musicians and platforms is evolving. And I think that's something that I would love to explore a little bit more deeply, just because of how important musicians seem to be in basically every form of social media. You know, we saw a couple months ago, or it might have been, um, you know, late last year, the move for Instagram and music to be a little bit more pushed so that when people are posting their stories or whatever have you, that they have those options readily available to you know pull from Spotify, for example. And it would be great to see in the same way we're seeing all these other creators kind of bypassing the middleman in order to deal directly with the platforms, if that's something that is available for music uh, musicians and artists to be able to try to make sure that discovery is available for them and that, you know, because there's the desire for the 16 people on their team to get paid, that you aren't preventing people from perhaps discovering your art in a pretty large space. So I'd be very intrigued to see uh, if something more so can happen that kind of levels the playing field between those two parties. Yeah, I think this agreement is is the first of many conversations to be had around how do you support both sides. Um, so it's really interesting. All right, Tommy, let's hear about uh, Google's new campaign histories. Yeah, so basically Google will start giving its users more information about who's running the ads that you see, the display ads, the ads in your videos. The company will now have little icons that you can click on and you can see about this ad menus that will give basic information about the advertisers as well as 
any other ads they've run in the past 30 days, information like the legal name of who placed the ad, the country where they placed the ad, and the rough number of their ads running with a list of those ads. And this is a pretty small change, but I think it speaks volumes for a couple of things. One, the name on everyone's lips right now is privacy. We have people in the government, the FTC, talking about privacy and keeping users safe and keeping user data safe. We have people on the internet um, crying for more transparency from advertisers, from trying to figure out their processes and make sure that everything is okay. We have acts like in Europe, like their privacy laws are so transparent. And I think for me, this is a step forward from the largest search engine in the world and really making sure that people feel like they have an ownership of their own privacy and also an engagement in the ads that they see. When you feel like you have some semblance of knowledge about what you're seeing, maybe you could be less hostile to the constant barrage of display ads that you see in your browser every morning. And it also could allow potentially users to have more relationship with advertisers. If you like an ad you see, now you have information to all the ads they've done and you can go straight to their product. So I think this is, again, we love a two-way relationship. We love brands being transparent. We love users feeling that their privacy is secure and that they also have a relationship with the ads that they are seeing. And I think this is an important step forward for this conversation about privacy and this narrative around how do we make sure that people feel safe on the internet, but also how do we get our ads and get our products towards the correct users. So I'm interested what you guys think about this, because I think it's a pretty, again, a small, but pretty interesting and notable step forward for Google. Yeah, I think this is super interesting and I kind of exciting. I mean, brands are multifaceted. You can have a specific ad that's geared toward a beauty fanatic and a different ad that's geared toward a young athlete. And they don't, you know, take away from each other. If you have a really solid brand foundation, you can tell a cohesive story across all of the people that you're trying to reach. So I think this is is more of a way to tie all of your brand messaging together at the very minimum. Um, I'm sure there are brands that will not benefit from this for whatever reason. But I think knowing how, you know, at least at Gray that we work with our brands, tell stories across different um, communities. This is interesting. And I think only going to add more transparency and, and cohesiveness across our, our storytelling. Cool. Guys, thank you so much for walking through the things this week. A lot a lot to unpack here. Um, it was a great time. Once again, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Apple and Spotify podcast. And as always, you can email us podcasts at gray.com. Thoughts, questions, opinions are always appreciated. Thanks so much. The Five Things are produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin, with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com. <laughs>